All right, as we continue with our book reading of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? How the Bible is Good News for People of Color by Antipas L. Harris. So as we continue our reading, we are now in chapter five of the Christian Scandalous Thinking. And I'm going to pick up with the subchapter of Yes, I religious mentality. Okay. The Christian scandal is exasperated when historically marginalized people uncritically rationalize their own oppression as the Christian way. Or even worse, when they stand idly by and accept oppression, saying, well, the Lord is in control. What kind of biblical interpretation dates back to slavery? Ex-slave preacher Frederick Douglass said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one is good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christian of Christ, therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grosset of all labels. Never was there a clearer case of, a steal, of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable Laughing when I contemplate the religious pump and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. Douglas somehow separated his own commitment to Christ from the slave master's religion. His own experience with God was so profound that he read the Bible for himself and applied a religious and social critique on the state of so-called Christianity during slavery. Douglas was convinced that the Christian faith of the Bible offers solutions, hope, love, compassion, and affirmation for all people. So he decided to use his gifts to participate in God's work of defeating the evil of slavery. In today's society, Scandalous thinking cripples people from living out their purpose. We learn from Douglas and others that accusing to what life throws our way is scandalous thinking. God is rather calling for us to be incarnational. The incarnation is about a God who came among us in Jesus Christ and set up resistance, excuse me, residence in our neighborhoods. John 1, 14. 
This means that the Christian mind, properly formed, is in inherently about a God who shows up in our world to realize God's hope, love, compassion, and impartiality for all people. Beyond spiritual colonization. What blatant forms of colonization ended many years ago, ideological and spiritual colonization persist. In the West, colonization of ideas occurs when people of color are made to think that their ideas are less noble than those of white people. Spiritual colonization bears its resemblance only worse because it is mental and spiritual. The presence of God among God's people, not powerful human beings, brings spiritual legitimacy. Here's a simple example of cultural bias in the development of two of the leading study Bibles on the market. The English Standard Version Study Bible and the HarperCollins Study Bible of the New Revised Standard Version. Both translations claim to be authoritative and the study notes included are penned by some of the world's leading scholars. Without expectation, the oversight editorial team for both volumes are white men that are trained in the male dominant Eurocentric model of biblical interpretations. They are fine scholars, but their perspectives are limited to their own context and ideology. There remains a dire need for commentaries from people of color and from female perspectives. Let's think about this. Traditionally, theology and theological education has limited biblical interpretation to studying original languages, decolorization of biblical characters, and assigning presumptuous and presuppositions, agendas, and male-dominant biases. The process can become very complex for those of us who have studied biblical languages it is a very humbling process. Even still, there is another element blindly overlooked. The modern worldview of the interpreter diving into the ancient culture and text. Proper theological thinking is a melding of both the primitive world that we are investigating and the modern views of the ones peering deeply into the ancient past. The two inform how we should think about God and the world. If the ancient text is only communicating with a Eurocentric worldview, the interpretation that follows will be a Eurocentric message to its hearers, which ends up being unhealthy for the majority of the world's population. We understand ancient cultures and modern texts based on our questions, prejudices, assumptions, biases, and a host of other factors that make us interpreters. For an example, 
My brother, Alonzo, is a trained musician. He reads a piece of music with musical knowledge and skills. This naturally influences the way he interprets a piece. Those who are not musically trained interpret arrangements as well. They may read the same piece of music as my brother, attempt to understand that the arranger was trying to do with the piece, and even grasp what was going on in the composer's life at the time that the piece was composed. But even with all that hard work, the trained and untrained listeners' interpretive lenses influence the way they understand a piece of music. The way that we handle the Bible is similar. We must not continue to trick ourselves into thinking that people's experiences are not important when interpreting scripture. Of course, we must be faithful to the text, but human experience is as a significant part of interpreting the word of God in scripture. Yet almost without fail, Western European models of biblical interpretation assume the dominant voice heard in American liberal and conservative Catholic and evangelical churches. For example, in the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah, God promises Sarah that he and Sarah will have a baby, even though they are very old. In a plot twist, though, one well within the normal activity of this primitive culture, Sarah suggests that Abraham have a baby with one of her with one of their slaves named Hagar. It's a set of circumstances that seems bizarre to modern readers, but it was not an uncommon practice at the time for a man to continue his family lineage in that way. As things turn out, Abraham impregnates Hagar. Contemporary readers might call it an example of sex slavery. At any rate, Hagar births a male child named Ishmael. God never condemns the cultural practice of slavery in the story or the use of the female slave as a sex object. It was in normal to the context as it, as it was for Thomas Jefferson to own Sally Hemings and sexualize her. In both the NRSV and NSV study Bibles mentioned earlier, the editor's contemporary notes are silent on the practice of slave ownership and the blatant sexual abuse in the narrative. Why is this the case? Could it be that the white male commentators are oblivious to what it feels like to live in oppression and under the abuse of power? How might the commentary's notes on this or other particular passage have differed if a slave, refugee, undocumented immigrant, black or brown person, or a woman wrote the commentary? As the story progresses, God rebukes Abraham and Sarah for their attempts to circumvent God's plan by choosing the culturally acceptable way of having a child over the faith-centered one. 
Based on God's rebuke, the couple realized that Ishmael is not the child they were promised as an heir. Instead, as senior citizens, God promises once again to give them a son together. The story tells us that a miracle takes place and Abraham and Sarah have their first child together, Isaac. Often, Abraham is lifted as the hero in the text, but there is far greater depth in the story than that. Because of the experiences of our ancestors and parents, for example, black people, refugees, undocumented immigrants, or abused women may read this text with particular interest in the plight of the slave girl and the child. The Bible tells us that Sarah grows jealous of Hagar and Ishmael. She insists that they be evicted from Abraham's wealthy property with no equivalent of a trust will, insurance, or a 529 plan. Abraham, the father of Ishmael, appears to be a weak and voiceless bystander as the child and his mother are sent into the desert to face what, must, what most would have assumed to be their inevitable death. Although the story looks bleak, God intervenes in the hopeless situation and miraculously provides nourishment for Hagar and the child. God blessed the boy with a promising future. If it were not for God breaking into his human story of marginalization, abandonment, and fatherlessness, perhaps blacks, refugees, undocumented persons, or abused women would find it hard to digest the story. For scholars interested in the formation of the Jewish people, this story has a rich and deep meaning. Without the miraculous provision of a child between two aged people, Isaac would have never been born. From this child, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, are said to have eventually emerged the story of an impossible childbirth is regularly celebrated in the church as an example of God's capacity to keep covenant promises, even if it means intervening in the form of miracles. Nothing is impossible for God, but the story has other characters besides Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Also, the reader's worldview determines how they are understood, as well as what level of emphasis is placed on each of them. For the Hebrew people, Hagar and Ishmael are classified as products of a faithless system. They are seen as less than because Abraham and Sarah determined they were not connected to the promise of God for their own future, which made them disposable. Hagar a slave owned for the pleasure of others could be removed from the community simply because of her negligible status within Abraham and Sarah's circle of influence. It did not matter that she was the mother of Abraham's child. She was expendable.
one more subchapter. Contextual questions and biblical interpretations. Fast forward a few thousand years to the Apostle Paul and his letter to the believers in Galatia. He interprets the Genesis narrative about Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and the birth of their sons through the eyes of a first century Jew with an audience of Roman citizens. Galatians 4, 21-31 Importantly, Paul is a descendant of Sarah's son Isaac and presents the story as a Christian metaphor. He asserts that those who try to live for God by legislation rather than by faith are comparable to Abraham taking upon himself to have Ishmael by his maid. Paul explains Sarah's son Isaac's birth as living by faith and Hagar's son Ishmael as a product of trying to fulfill God's promises on his own terms. He implies that our choices to follow flesh-driven choices will produce sinful outcomes. So, we should ignore impulses of the flesh to live according to God's promises. This is Paul's theological interpretation of the story to illustrate the seriousness of faith over trying to work things out on our own. Here, the author Paul reads the ancient Hebrew narrative through his contextual lens and with close attention to the theological metaphor embedded for first century Christian insight. Again, black people, refugees, undocumented immigrants, or abused women enjoy the benefit of Paul's main point about living by faith, but they also would likely focus on the horror surrounding the treatment and fate of the slave. The reader's context shapes the way in which one tells and understands the story. Paul's focused audience would connect with his reading of the story. Their main question is about what it takes to be a part of the Christian family. Should they be circumcised or not? But another audience at another time in history may have questions about the abuse of power. Okay, so we're going to stop right here until our next reading. We'll pick up and continue with chapter 5. Be blessed.